And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the love you have shown, and thank you that we are the recipients of such immeasurable grace. These are great songs that we sang this morning, and really moving in our soul, and we trust that they were pleasing to you as your children lift up their voices to give you praise and express our love to you, and now our love for your word. We invite you by your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing, the revelation of this word to illuminate our hearts with it, to feed us, that we would be nurtured, that we would grow. And as we go through this book of Romans, our quest that our view of you continues to grow and we are amazed at what a great God, a big God um, that you are. Now teach us and your sons and your daughters will listen. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In your mind, when you think about federal agents, uh, what do you think about? I have to confess, when I think about federal agents, I'm thinking about Maxwell Smart and Get Smart, <laughs> or maybe Napoleon Solo in Man from Uncle. You remember that? I'm dating myself, aren't I? Dennis, you've got to help me on this one. <laughs> or how about uh, uh, Agent J on Men in Black? What's another one? Of course, these are all fictitious federal agents. There, there are genuine federal agents, too, uh, famous ones like J. Edgar Hoover, or uh, who's another one? Elliot Ness. Uh, I can't think of someone else. And of course, we have a lot of famous federal agencies, you know, like the FBI, the DEA, Homeland Security, uh, Secret Service. But I really want to talk about the fact that ultimately, as far as we are concerned in this story of redemption, there really are only two federal agents that are worth talking about. They are the federal agents of Adam and Jesus, and I mean that because they are our federal heads. I had an interesting lunch this week with a pastor friend of mine, and he's preaching through the book of Revelation. No S on the end of that, Dave, it's just Revelation. Okay. And uh, we got to talking as part of, you know, there's a lot of different ways to interpret the book of Revelation, not Revelations, Dave. And uh, he asked me about covenant theology, and I, was, I, asked, I asked him back, well, what do you mean? Because covenant theology, although everybody's heard the term, very few people understand what it actually means, because it means different things depending on who you're talking to. And this pastor was Baptist, and he knew I have a Reformed background, and so... I asked him, well, what do you mean by covenant theology? Because to many, the idea of covenant theology means that you baptize babies. And, and I'm not paedo-baptistic. I don't practice baptizing babies, and neither does he. <clears throat> but that's what he thought of a covenant theology. Well, it could also mean the fact that if you're a covenant theologian, that you recognize all these covenants in the Old Testament. So you have the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, covenant with David, the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai with the covenant of, with Israel. So you have all these covenants that's talking about in the Old Testament. And so there's an understanding that covenant theologians are kind of trying to understand the Bible, the New Testament, in terms of all these Old Testament covenants. But in reality, when you talk about covenant theology, there are only two covenants. There's the covenant that God made with Adam, and he is our federal head, our federal agent, our federal representative. And then the covenant that God made with his son, Jesus Christ. So those are really the only two covenants in covenant theology. And what makes them essential is in each case, each one of these people, these men, that God covenants with become our federal heads, our federal agents. And so we understand the concept of federalism or federal agency and that like the idea of an ambassador, that an ambassador makes a, a, an agreement with another country and then everybody in, in his country is also making that agreement through him. But we talk about that's, that in this case, Adam stands in representation of all men, and the decision he makes affects all men under him. He stands in our, in our stead. But when Adam stood in our stead, he disobeyed God. He introduced sin into the world. And so we become 
guilty, not just because we are sinners, just not because we are born sinners and do sin. We become guilty because of our association with our federal agent, our federal head, who because of his guilt, his disobedience, passes on this guilt to the rest of us who are all born under him. He is our federal head. He represents us all. But so too, and this is why it's critical to understand this idea of federal headship, we have to understand that Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way as Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So if you don't understand how you inherited sin and how God counts you as a sinner through that, you will not understand how God imputes righteousness to you and how God counts you righteous through that. So we need this righteousness to be reconciled to God. And we have this this discussion principally in this text that's before us today, but also from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Adam, excuse me, when Paul talks about the two Adams. There's the first Adam, the, the one who God made, and, and he is the first federal head, federal agent. And then he also Paul's also talking about the second Adam, um, who is who is Jesus. So all of the other covenants that are in the Old Testament, they're interesting. They help to to uh, define or to continue our understanding or fill out the missing parts about the process of redemption. But all of those other covenants are really incidental to the fact that, that there are these two covenants because none of the other covenants directly passes on to us. You know, we talk about, we've been talking a lot about God's covenant with Abraham, that Abraham through faith believed. But that doesn't make you automatically a believer or automatically have faith. And we talk about God's covenant with David and how David faithfully discharged the, the role that God had placed him as, as a king. But that doesn't automatically mean that all the kings that followed David were also faithful to him. The point is it's that, that we are guilty through our federal head, Adam. So it's not that you are guilty because you sin, though you do. And it's not that you are guilty because you were a sinner, though, though you are. It's you are born guilty because of your federal agency, your federal head. You were born guilty because you share in Adam's sin. That's what condemns us. We are held guilty because of our union with Adam. Uh, Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We inherit, of course, a sinful nature from Adam, but that's not what condemns us. What condemns us, what makes us subject to death, is the fact that we have all sinned in Adam and that we are all held guilty of sin. It's our union with Adam that accounts for all the trouble. It's our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for our salvation. This is a really difficult concept to understand, but it is an essential concept to understand how salvation takes place. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week. Turn to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. <coughs> so, <clears throat> a brief rundown of where we've been with Romans. Paul introduces himself and his relationship with those at Rome. He expresses his desire to, to visit them. He tells us why he's writing his epistle. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And then Paul immediately sets forth this great dilemma that all men are in. The dilemma is that God is righteous and humans are rotten. And that's just kind of an oversimplification, that we are, God is righteous and, and you are not. And in his righteousness, because God is holy and just, he must judge and condemn sin. He can't just simply overlook at and wink at it and because of his great love just disregard it. He is, he is righteous and he must condemn sin. The problem is in our rottenness, every human being, Jew, Gentile, every human being is under this divine condemnation because we have each received a revelation and understanding of who God is and of what God wants, and we've all decided, I understand, I don't want it. I don't want God, I reject it. And so God has provided the solution to this dilemma in that uh, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be born a man and to die on the cross to, to bear the justice of God so that God's righteousness is satisfied. And now this righteousness is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And those several illustrations like Abraham received this 
faith before he was a Jew. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, circumcised. He, so the, the, the basis of faith is just believing that if God says something, it's true. I accept that. That's the basis of faith and not by works. We're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Now we get to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now the view changes, and so it's a difficult passage to break down because there's a parenthesis within a parenthesis in this passage, and so you kind of get lost in it, and we'll try to break these things down. The point is that through Adam's one act of disobedience, he brought a curse upon himself and all of his descendants, that all of us um, bear this curse, and the curse is that we are sinners, and because of being born into Adam, that we must die, that we, we go through the, the pattern of, of being, being born, growing up, getting, growing old, and dying. So dying is the curse that comes through Adam's one act of disobedience. And parallel to that is this one act of obedience that Christ does, and through this one act of obedience, we are offered this solution to the curse. We are offered life instead of death. And we are offered forgiveness instead of guilt. And so our text falls into three sections, basically. Verses 12 to 14 are showing us the similarities between our federal agents, our federal heads, the similarity between Adam and Jesus. Verses 15 through 17 emphasize the contrasts or the dissimilarities between our federal heads, Jesus and Adam. Um, the similarities between these two men show the basis for the Lord's work. The, the differences, the dissimilarities show the cure for the curse that Adam brought on the whole human race. And then when we get to verses 18 through 21, he sums up the work of the Lord. Um, and he defines the role that the, the law played. We've spent a lot of time in that. And then man's sin in relation to God's grace. So let's jump in. Verse uh, 512. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So we, we're right away confronted with the consequence of Adam's disobedience, and that is death. But it raises two really big questions for us, for all men right away. And the two questions are this. Why is sin universal? And secondly, why is death the universal experience of all people because of sin? Now, we can talk about the natural processes, and because we can observe that in our view of creation, from what we observe the natural processes of living organisms to be, they're born, they come into existence, they grow, they mature, um, they decline, and then they perish. The, there's a problem with that, however, and that is that all of us have this innate awareness that as human beings, there's something more, that we were not born into this natural cycle. And the truth is we were not. The Bible says you were born something different. You were born with two natures, a fleshly nature and a spiritual nature. By the way, it'd be very difficult to evolve a spirit. It's highly unlikely that any amount of time given you could, through evolution, generate a, holy, a spirit within a person. But we are aware that we have this eternal, immortal, unliving spirit, a presence that goes on beyond this life. We're all aware of that. We're all aware that what happens somehow for humans is not natural, that we should have to die. And so man creates all kinds of, of explanations on trying to create some meaning out of life after death. So our bodies die, but what happens to the essential part of us in the process? And so we end up with all kinds of fanciful explanations, like we go to Mount Olympus or, or uh, Valhalla or Hades or Sheol or the underworld or paradise or heaven. And all religions of the world have some kind of concept of what happens after this, because there's an awareness that death somehow indicates something has gone terribly wrong. This is not how it's supposed to happen. Now Paul is saying that the problem is actually much, much deeper than this. For humans, 
Because as far as we know, from our place in creation, we are the only beings that have a physical body and an immortal spirit. For humans, we realize death is not natural. And because it's not natural, how do you explain the reality of it? And we explain it because death is the consequence of Adam's sin, of Adam's fall. That sin entered the world through this one act of Adam, the first man, the man God covenanted with as the federal head of all human beings. And as a consequence of his sin, death passes to all of his progeny. And Paul is saying the problem is a lot deeper than human teachers or philosophers or psychologists are willing to admit. Because apart from Christ, it's, it's not simply that you from time to time by some indiscretion do something that God disapproves of. The problem of sin is way more complicated than that. The problem is more than the fact that by nature you are a sinner and you sin because it's your nature. Although that's true too. The problem is that because you are born in Adam as your federal head, you automatically are born guilty, a sinner. And you say, oh, that's not fair. Well, the fair's got nothing to do with it. I mean, there's all kinds of examples, and you, we can look at uh, some examples right from the Bible of uh, a federal relationship. Like, well, let's look at uh, David and Goliath. So, so David and Goliath, you know the story. The Philistines are squared off with the Israelites. And the, for weeks, their battle lines are drawn up, and they want to have representative battle. They say, you bring out your champion, we'll bring out our champion. Whichever champion wins, the whole team wins. So if you guys overcome Goliath, we will serve you. If Goliath overcomes your champion, you serve us. And that's the story of David and Goliath. So David, this tiny little guy comes out, and he's going to square off with a nine-foot armed human tank. And the chances are infinitely opposed. But that's the, we're going on a different story. And so you say, well, how is that fair? Well, well, it's not fair. Fair doesn't have anything to do with it. But, you know, that kind of representative battle saved a lot of lives. The point is, that's how it is. It's not a matter of whether it's fair. It's just that's how it is. Or you talk about, in the world of genetics, for instance, you know, we understand, I have green eyes. I inherited these green eyes. It's not fair. I didn't vote for it. You know, only 5% of the population has green eyes. You know, like, what is it? Like, 60% of you have brown eyes, and another 5% have blue eyes. And you know, too, that people are born with a genetic predisposition towards a certain kind of cancer or a certain kind of illness. You know, your, your parents had this genetic predisposition and you are likely to inherit it. You might take very radical steps to, to prevent that. And you say, well, it's not fair that I inherited this genetic predisposition. That's what I'm saying. It's not about fair. It's just the way it is. It's not a matter of whether things are fair. Fair's got nothing to do with it. And two, when we talk about you inheriting this guilt from Adam and you say it's not fair, my answer is it's not about fair. It's just the way it is. Verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we'll try to condense this down a little bit. His point was, you know, there's several thousand years between Adam and Moses. Adam had been given a very specific uh, law, don't eat from this one tree. You're free to do whatever you want except this one thing. So he had, there's a, a law, a rule that's given to Adam, and he disobeyed it. You jump forward to Mount Sinai, several thousand years forward, I don't know how many thousands of years, and at Mount Sinai, God gives the first the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other regulations, and all of a sudden you know from Mount Sinai, God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So if I violate those things, I'm clearly violating the law, in this case, the Sinai law, the covenant that God made with 
Moses and the people of Israel. But what about everybody else in between? Because it's obvious everybody else in between also died, and they didn't have Adam's rule or the rules that Moses brought forward. How is it that they're held guilty? Well, we talked about this in Romans 1, 20 or 21, how everybody has this awareness of what God wants, even if they don't have the laws that were given in, at Sinai. Everyone has an awareness of God, who God is and what God wants, and everyone nevertheless violates those rules. I mean, you think about even people who've never heard anything about the Bible, Old or New Testament, they've never heard anything at all about that. You imagine some super primitive tribe that's been completely cut off from any other kind of influence. Still, they have an awareness of what is acceptable, what is right, what is wrong. It's not right to show cowardice. It's not right to steal from other people in the village. So there's, this, there, there's laws without the law. You know, there's, there's awareness of what is required and there's consequential sin. And even in the Bible, you find this. Right after Adam, what happens? Cain kills Abel. How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. So <laughs> people, are, people are born, they're sinning. We, we read of the patriarchs in between Adam and Moses doing all kinds of nasty things, lying, stealing, killing each other. So they're, they're continuing to violate what God wants, even though they're not specifically violating the Ten Commandments or don't eat from the tree of life, so, or of the knowledge of good and evil, excuse me. So even though they're not specifically violating these outlined laws, they're still guilty. Paul's point here is not that they're guilty for violating the laws. Paul's point is they died. Why did they die? Because they were born in Adam. They were born in sin. They suffered the curse. They were guilty before for God. So everyone, regardless of how much sin or how, how, how badly you sin or deeply you sin, everyone is guilty before God and everyone has violated this covenant of works. They didn't have the special revelation, but they still died because of their association with Adam. And the fact is, even today, apart from the laws of the Bible, people are dying. All of us die. Good people die. Paul died. Moses died. They all die. It is the fact that death embraces us all. It is this radical and universal because sin is radical and universal as well. There's a guy by the name of Frank Borkenau, and he wrote a book about analyzing different cultures, and he says you can tell a lot about a, a culture from how they deal with the, the reality of death, how they, how they, their basic attitudes towards death. And he breaks it down in his book. He says there's basically, in any culture, three, one of three overriding principles or attitudes concerning death. There's a death-accepting culture, there's a death-denying culture, and then there's a death-defying culture. And then he gives several examples. So in the death-accepting um, culture, he uses the Greeks and especially the very famous death of Socrates. Socrates, by the way, you recognize him as one of the early philosophers of, in, in Greece. In, Socrates was condemned by the men of Athens for being an atheist. In other words, he did not believe that the Greek gods were literal, that he was real. And so they said that he was polluting the youth because of his atheism, and they condemned him to death. They gave him the hemlock. He was supposed to drink the hemlock. Well, he did, he, and died. It was kind of a enforced suicide, I don't know. But uh, so in this very famous account of Socrates' death. All of his students are gathered around and they're weeping and they're trying to come to terms with what's going on here. And Socrates uh, uses this as an opportunity to teach his students. He's very death accepting. So in, in, in the next kind of culture, the death denying culture, Borkinaz uses the American people as this death-denying culture, and he finds this to be the, the dumbest, most inadequate explanation possible. 
is why in a culture like ours is death so rigorously denied when it is in fact an inescapable reality and how is it that how is that so why do we go in our culture to such great lengths to avoid even talking about death so there was a, there was a study done by Forest Lawn you remember the, the Forest Lawn Memorial is a famous West Coast funeral institution and they commissioned this American Baptist seminary professor by the name of Richard Doss to study this question. Why are Americans so death-denying? And uh, Doss investigates it, and he comes up with three explanations. First is psychological. I'll be brief here. And he's, he uses uh, uh, Sigmund Freud in man's grip, his, his inner terror, this unconscious, subconscious fear of death. And he says that the more you're exposed to death, the more you deny the reality of death. And in our culture, you know, we see death on TV, we see people blowing other people up, we see it so much that we uh, were confronted with it so much that we, we vigorously deny uh, the reality altogether. So the first reason that Doss says Americans are death denying is our, the psychology. The second has to do with the culture, and of course we're all very keen to that. Our culture denies death. Our culture uh, is aware that death is a reality, but instead we promote, we emphasize such thing as youthfulness and vitality and productivity. The worth of an individual is measured in uh, what they can contribute to the society. Wholeness is, is measured by one's ability to think and act young. So in America, death is not an enemy to uh, be defeated when Christ comes. Death is an enemy to be defeated right now and so we do all kinds of things to defeat death through our going to gyms and health spas and we get facelifts we go on diets we eat health foods you know a variety of other body enhancing activities and and surgeries and pastimes um, because we are we are rejecting in our culture death but finally Doss comes to the conclusion that the biggest reason in america that we are a death denying culture is religious he says we're a nation which has lost its religious consciousness. And he writes this, uh, religion has been a major force in shaping the ideas and lifestyle of the American people. Our forefathers came to this country with a clearly defined view of man and the world. From the Puritan settlements of New England to 19th century life on Western frontier, a theological framework supported and interpreted man's place in society and his relationship with nature and God. Man believed and felt that God had a purpose for life and more that every man could know and understand God's plan. Death was one element within this religious framework and thus could be dealt with openly and treated as a natural part of life. Burial of the dead was carried out with religious rites which give expression to this view of God's purpose for man. But the 20th century has seen a virtual abolition of the traditional Christian framework with no new proposal to take its place. Secularization has separated modern man from the older understandings of man and society, and in so doing has separated death from the means by which it has been isolated and denuded. With no meaningful framework to understand death, our culture has adopted a style of denial and avoidance. But the reality is you can't avoid death. Sooner or later, its form creeps across your threshold. Sooner or later, it finds its way into your home or into your neighbor's home or into your family's home or your people that you love. It walks down the street. It, it enters your home. You can't deny the reality of death. In fact, we tremble before that, and yet we are so fanatic about pushing it out of our minds as if it doesn't exist. Now, the third type of culture with dealing with death is the death-defying culture, and this is what Franz Birkenau says um, that was common among Judaism and Christianity. The, the Old Testament Jews saw this as part of the process of redemption. And Paul is doing the very same thing. In fact, Paul is the chief example of the death-defying attitude. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your, your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does the apostle answer the culture of death 
in that way? How did he sustain this defiance of death? The answer is that Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he promised that through him we too would rise from the dead. The reality is this, Christianity in the end has the only explanation for the universal reign of death. And Christianity alone has the only solution for it. Well, let's move on, verse 14. Um, here we find that Adam is referred to as a type of Jesus. Again, this is really critical in understanding of this text. This word type, depending on your version of the Bible here, is, is translated different ways. Um, it's, it's in, the New, in the King James Version, it's type or pattern. In the Revised Version, um, the New English Bible results to a paraphrase of the word type. It says, Adam foreshadows the man who was to come. Uh, J.B. Phillips says, Adam, the first man, corresponds to some degree to the man who was to come. Uh, the word here for type comes from the Greek word typos. <laughs> Not too, so you're all Greek scholars by now. A typos just means a figure, and so it was referred to as if you had an idol, it was a figure of the god. You didn't really think that the idol on your shelf was the god. It was a type. It was a representation, and it was a similarity to the god. Eventually, typos became uh, applied to not only the gods, but also to, to people or objects because it typified, it prefigured, it looked forward to, it showed a pattern of, all synonyms for type. By the way, you know the word type means to strike, and we get a word typewriter because it strikes the image. So that's the, now you're, now you're not, you know, entomology in the English words too. So, <laughs> so how, for us, how is it that Paul could say that Adam was a type a pattern, a representative, a prefigurement, an image. How, in what way is Adam a type of Jesus Christ? Well, I could think of at least two ways. First, in that both Adam and Jesus were appointed by God to be the federal head, to be a representative for all men, for other men. And we've already seen how God appoints Adam to stand in the place of all humanity, our federal head, our representative, so that if Adam stood firm, if he resisted sin, we would not have inherited sin. But he fell, and in him we fall too. But so too, Jesus is represented, is typified in Adam because he also is our representative, that God has appointed him to represent others, to represent the many. Secondly, both Adam and Jesus pass on the effects of their obedience and or disobedience um, to other people. Uh, the effect of Adam's sin was condemnation and death for all of us, the effects of Jesus' righteousness, his obedience, is that we inherit his righteousness, that we become justified, that God is satisfied, and, and that we inherit eternal life. Well, again, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's got a really excellent summary on these two similarities. He says, Adam's sin and its consequences were passed on to us without exception. Christ's obedience and righteousness is passed on to all who believe in him. Uh, verse... 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So again, here's a, here's a paragraph of contrast. As I found at least nine of them. So you have trespass versus gift, death versus eternal life, condemnation versus justification, the one versus the many, the sin versus the righteousness, uh, Adam versus Christ. And we get down to, down to uh, verses 18 through 21. The seven were at disobedience versus obedience, sinners versus the one who's been made righteous. And then this really is the important one because this is what it's all been leading to. The ninth dissimilarity is law versus grace. So this, this becomes really the climax to which Paul is building, this contrast between those under the law and those under grace. And it's really a curious thing, too, because he talks about this superabundant grace. And I think we need to pause here and talk about that for a minute. The first evidence of that is you'll notice that when Jesus introduces righteousness to us, we are not brought back to the righteousness of Adam. Adam had a righteousness that was his prior to the fall. The work of Christ in dying on the cross doesn't just simply restore us to Adam's position of righteousness. Rather, it launches us, it carries us forward to a righteousness which was in Christ. That's something Adam could not have had. He had his own righteousness prior to the fall. But we are launched well beyond that, not only to be restored to our original righteousness, but we are given the righteousness of Christ. That's something Adam did not have any title to. What an amazing concept. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. It's not only that we are forgiven, but over and above being forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is put to our account, is put on us. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but it was his own righteousness as a created being. It was the righteousness of a man. Adam never had the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. What he lost was his own righteousness. But you and I are not merely given back a human righteousness, a righteousness that Adam had before the fall. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Much more, he says, in abundance, superabundance, given full weight to us. We receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. That's astonishing to me. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So verse 20 begins by, again by mentioning the law. And we spent a lot of time in this in, in uh, Romans so far. And just to reiterate a couple points here, the, the law was not given so that men might be justified. Although the Jews at that time, well, I guess the Jews today too, think that they are justified through the observing of the law. Um, they believe that uh, that was Judaism's greatest treasure, was having the law. And Paul then goes to great pains to disabuse this thought. And that's what we've been spending a lot of time with in our early study of, of Romans. The law does not make you righteous. The law exposes the fact that you are not righteous. The law tells you what you should do, but it does not give you the power to do that thing. It doesn't enable you to do it. All it can do is reveal that you are a sinner. And so we jump back to chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, uh, so that everyone might be silenced. Uh, because the whole world is accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous uh, in his sight by observing the law, but rather through the law becomes conscious of his sin. In other words, we've gone to great pains to show that you don't become righteous by observing the law. You just discover what a dirtbag you really are when you see the law, and it says what God requires and how far you fall short from that. Now, in this section, Romans 5 12 and on, Paul goes further to say, you know what? Having the law wasn't even necessary for you to be condemned. You were born through Adam 
a guilty sinner and you inherited death through him. You didn't have to do anything. You had to do nothing at all to stand condemned before God. We've all been condemned through Adam. It's because of his trespass, not mine, that I have become a sinner. Now, in this, the second half of verse 20, this is one of the most remarkable verses in all of the Bible, worthy of your underliner in case you have one and want to underline your Bible. This stands out as a, as a beacon in the midst of a rather gloomy darkness because we've spent a lot of time in darkness with condemnation and so forth in the book of Romans. Here's this remarkable lighthouse, this piercing light that shines out here, this light in the middle of this horrific proliferation of, of sin. And it says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That is an amazing verse. Now I want to make two points about this super abundant, super flowing grace of God. The first is this, that grace is not withheld from us because of sin. Grace is not withheld from us because of sin. And you need to understand that um, that God is not going to withdraw his grace from you because you are a super derelict, because you did something especially sinful. We need to know that because we're not like that. You know, when somebody offends us, you know, the first thing is we, we're, we withdraw our favor from them. Our, we, we pull back our friendship, our kindness, our affability when somebody offends us. And if they've offended us particularly grievously, if we feel especially hurt by their offense, we find it really hard to even be civil towards them. Am I right? God's grace is not like that because he is not like us. Where sin abounds, grace increases it superabounds and you may have considered this fact that you have your sin is so despicable uh, that somehow your sin has erected this dam against the flowing river of God's grace and your sin is so despicable that though God's grace is flowing you have stopped its flow you have dammed up the grace of God and, and I don't know what that sin would be is it some particular sexual sin? Is it, is it adultery? Is it, is it perversion? Or perhaps you've stolen from your employer or from your parents or someone who's close to you. Or, um, you've ruined somebody's reputation. Maybe you murdered someone. Worse that, then you lied about it. You know, it's bad enough that you would murder someone, but then it's the lying. And I'm just so offended that you lied about it. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can remember a the time in your life when you, you lashed back at God and you were afraid that you had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you were so angry at God that you, you, you lashed out against him. And you think back on those sins, and they might not have been that long ago. And you think, well, God's grace is a flowing river, and my sin is a giant concrete dam. And I am holding back. I am beyond the bounds of hope I'm destined to, to suffer the loss of God's grace. If you're such a person, then consider yourself fortunate that you're at least aware of your sin because that's the first sign that the Lord is working in your heart, that you care that you have sinned and you grieve for your sins and you admit your sin. Where sin increased, grace increases all the more. Where sin is multiplied, Grace is multiplied. And there's no dam that you can erect against the flow of God's grace. It's going to ultimately hold God's grace back. It is super abundant. Not, not Adam's sin, not the sin of the people in Sinai, not, not Moses' sin, not David's sin, not Paul's sin, not Peter's sin, not my sin, not your sin. God's grace is super abundant, regardless of what you have done and you can always repent and find the full forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But secondly, uh, God's grace is not something 
that you receive once and then you start depleting it. You know, maybe when you first became a Christian, you were so overwhelmed by the awareness of God's grace. I'm going to break this button. I can't. There it goes. You may have considered this about yourself. I came to Christ and I received a full dose, a 100% allotment of God's grace. And at that time, I was a first-class Christian. I was on fire for the Lord. I was doing stuff. God was working in me. Everything was, everything was humming along. Since I have become a Christian, I have failed him. I have sinned. Maybe those sins are particularly heinous. And you, you begin to think, maybe not in these terms, but you'll grasp the concept, that I'm eroding, I'm using up the grace that I had been given. But God still loves me. I'm still a Christian. I'm still saved by faith. But I'm no longer a first-class Christian. I may be a second or a third-class Christian because I'm using up the allotment of grace uh, that, that God gave me. But I want to tell you that grace is not doled out in proportions. It's without ending. It's, it's fullness. You, you imagine a man that was once close to God, but, but he's since walked away from God. He feels like he's, he's slowly eroding. He's slowly wasting away because he's used up his portion of grace. You ever find yourself thinking like that? I don't mean to suggest even for a second that, that, that God condones sin or that he approves of it or that he's not offended by it. The fact is God hates sin. He hates sin in anyone. He particularly hates sin in his children. He hates sin in you. He hates it so much that his son died a very miserable death uh, to remove that destructive tyranny from your life. He hates sin. But the point I'm trying to make is that God will never diminish his grace towards you. In fact, it is really when you realize how despicable your sin is and how it has caused his heart so much grief. When you come to that point of repentance and realizing your need for the grace of God, that you fully begin to understand grace. Some of the people that I have met that have had the best grip on grace had the most despicable lives before that. But they so changed, so transformed by the awareness of God's grace. You can't know that. I mean experientially. You can't understand that grace unless you have been the recipient of it. But God's grace is without those limits. R.C. Sproul wrote, Adam and Eve failed the covenant of works. And when that failure took place, God did not destroy the human race, but added a promise to the original covenant of redemption, which would come through the seed of the woman. The promise pertained to the one who would crush the head of the serpent even while his head would be injured in the process. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, to David, and all the rest were promises to pour out his blessing on people on the basis of his preserving, redeeming, saving grace. The Bible teaches that justification is by faith alone, yet ultimately there's only one way anybody is ever saved in the presence of God, and that is through works. The question is not whether we are going to be saved through works. The question is, whose works? We are saved through the works of the one who alone fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works. And that's why it's not just the death of Christ that redeems us, but also his, the life of Christ. But one man's by one man's disobedience, we were plunged into ruin. But by the obedience of one man, the new Adam, we are justified. Saying that we are justified by faith alone is simply shorthand for saying that we are justified by Christ alone. Justification by faith alone means that we cannot make it on the basis of our works, but by trusting in someone else's works. Our works will never save us, but Christ's works are perfect and they meet all the requirements of the covenant of works. Again, do you realize now that you don't have to do a single thing to be condemned. You're 
condemned because of what you are, not just because of what you've done. You're condemned because you have inherited Adam's sin. But you can also inherit the righteousness of Christ by faith in believing. And you can receive the offer that God is making you to, right now today of his justification through that faith alone. And God's offering it to you. And if you're resistant to that idea, I ask you not to be. You don't wait until you feel better, until you feel more religious. Don't wait until you hear something that stirs you emotionally, you feel some kind of tingle up and down your, your spine, and you have this physical experience that confirms to you that God's at work in you, and he's translated you from, his, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the, from the realm of death to the realm of life. It's simply a matter of having the same kind of faith that Abraham had. What was that? God told him something that was astounding and unlikely to be true, but he believed God. That's all that God is asking of you, too. He's given you an astonishing promise, and all he asks is that you believe that he's true, and he'll do what he says. And the moment that you believe that he's true, you pass from death into life. All right, so Maxwell Smart's still my same favorite federal agent. But no joke, I'm so glad that Jesus is my federal head. Let's pray. It's a remarkable truth, and yet it's so difficult for us to understand, even more difficult for us to grasp and believe. How is it that just simply believing in Jesus imputes a righteousness to us so acceptable to us, to you, that you have given us eternal life, that you have broken the curse of death that we inherited through Adam? Yet by faith, because you allow me to, I believe you to be true. And I accept the imputed righteousness of Christ as I acknowledge the imputed unrighteousness of Adam. Now, Father, help us to learn what it means to live justified, righteous, forgiven before you. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, who gave his life for us. Amen.